Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Oh, good evening. Um, I've found it really helpful even when I practice by myself at home during time of mourning uh, to sometimes do the practice standing up. And uh, it really brings some uh, relationship with gravity to the body and um, also brings a lot more sensation into the body. And uh, I recommend this as a really simple practice uh, that any of you can do. So um, please try it out. Um, And when I was in Vancouver and this young woman died, who I think was 22, her name was Ashley. Uh, Within four hours, the mayor was at Occupy Vancouver giving a press conference about how she's symbolic of downtown Vancouver. And you'll see in the newspapers in the next few days that Jenna's death is also going to be symbolic of what's wrong with uh, the absence of bike lanes in Toronto and so on. And I really encourage all of us to really let in our hearts that, uh, the, that, that Jenna's death is not a metaphor for something. It's not symbolic for something. Uh, and it's a human being. And uh, part of being in a sangha or being in a community is, I always think we'll end up marrying each other and burying each other. And it's kind of a beautiful thing about the network of... of, of uh, knowing each other. Well, I don't know if there's any marrying each other. Oh, there's a couple. Okay. Um, And and on a brighter note, I I just want to acknowledge Sarah, who's here, and congratulations for the birth of your son. (laughs) Yeah. And to Jesse and Georgia. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, it's great. It's great that you're here. Um, so something else that's on my mind before we turn to the Yoga Sutra is um, uh, in, in most uh, Buddhist temples or centers that I've been to 
there's an area put in a corner or on a wall separate from the altar where we would have names of, uh, usually there is a statue of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, and on one side would be some cards of names of people who are dying or who are ill, uh, who we wish uh, will get better or pass away smoothly. And on the other side of the Bodhisattva, there are names of people who've died uh, in the last year. And I think it would be nice to build one of these in this room. So maybe at the end of the evening, if anybody's interested in helping me do this, uh, we could maybe together just talk about some simple things we would need to be able to do something like this. And we could have something. Because it seems a lot in the past few months, there's been people we've known who've been uh, ill or who we've been wishing for, and it would be nice to kind of mark it somehow. So if anybody wants to help, help with that, please see me at the end. Um, and it's interesting because our homework, does anybody remember the homework from last week? What was the homework? Um, it was to see everything yeah. um, as being a moment, uh-huh. existing in a moment. Yeah. So to see everything as being a moment in time. Did anybody do the homework? Yeah. Well, not so many people. So maybe we can stretch the homework out for another week. Is really to to see, and and just catch yourself in the day. Do you remember we used to do that practice um, calling the master? Does anybody remember that one? Master, are you awake? That was a funny one. This one's a little more solemn. Uh, but the, the practice would be some any time during the day when there's a mood or you see something beautiful or you see something devastating, to just remind yourself to, to try and see what's going on as just a moment in time. A moment of loneliness. Right? A moment of grief. A moment of beauty. And not to hold on to it or add anything to it, but just to see things as a moment in time. This is really a wonderful practice. Um, When I was in Vancouver, I was trying to do this practice, but I lived in Vancouver several years ago, and so it's really hard to be in Vancouver without constantly being in the past. You know, Gastown does not look like Gastown 15 years ago. Um, So I was trying to do this practice, you know, just seeing things as a moment in time. It's really interesting. So maybe next week, when more of us have had practice doing this. Some of you have been not doing your homework. (laughs) (laughs) So try and stick with your homework. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I wasn't here last week. So seeing something as a moment in time, just cherishing that moment. Not even cherishing. Witnessing. Not even, just just trying to... to Isolate. Yeah. You get it? Yeah, not, you're not like suddenly making it all holy and divine and vibrating, man. It's just like... So not a past and not a future, just... A just a moment in time. Right. Yeah. And if you have a thought about the past, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. And if you have a thought about it, the past, see that as a moment in time. Or if you catch yourself, you know, imagining a trip you're going to take in a few months. That's a moment in time. Experiencing that in this moment of time. Yeah.
Um, so before we get into the next section of the Yoga Sutra, uh, I'm wondering if we could just do a small group exercise, which is just to share together uh, two questions. And I'd like to do this in group of, groups of three. And maybe just take a couple minutes each and just go around and, and just share. So the first question is, um, because we've been focusing so much on the techniques of meditation practice in September, so the first question is, what are you learning in your meditation practice? And this could be even just the practice tonight. Okay? Or it can be over the past few months. And the second question is, and what is your edge? What is the edge that you come to in meditation practice? And you may interpret that in different ways. It might be the edge where you realize you're pulling back in time, for example. You could maybe be sitting longer. Or an edge where you're hitting some uh, difficulty that you're not really facing. Uh, however you interpret that. So question number one, what are you learning in the meditation practice? Question number two, and what is your edge? What is your edge in meditation practice? But don't interpret it as like getting an edge. <laughs> I'm getting an edge on the practice compared to her. <laughs> okay, so let's just take a couple minutes each to just share this. Um, and if meditation's more of a new practice for you and you're not sure how to answer that, uh, you can, you, it's not like you can get it right. Um, so just share what, what, what happened today in the meditation practice. Okay? So group, groups of three. Okay, there's obviously a, a lot of, to say. It's amazing how many words you can spill about meditation practice. Does anybody have anything they want to share about what they shared with their group, about uh, what they're learning in practice, or what the edges that they come in contact with? Don't be shy. Yeah? Can I share something you said? Just having said that struck, struck me that um, oh, in practice. Uh-huh dealing with sort of sadness and whatnot, but having moments where you sort of, maybe you see a chair or a door or something, and you, have a, and a, you see it, and somehow it reminds you that, that things will change. Hmm. Kind of yeah. and there's some hope that's there, organic in that, which is mm-hmm. not too mm-hmm. sharing for my edge part about the um, working on raising my what I call upper limits which is where I'm comfortable feeling good Hmm. before I, if it goes too high I'm going to bring it back down because Hmm. it's awfully challenging to let good, lots of good things in Uh you're not used to it yeah um and just how good it feels to meditate and how wonderful a practice it is a thing to do for myself and how calming it is and all the wonderful benefits and um, that I need to embrace it more regularly 
rather than push it aside mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. talk myself out of it. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, a couple more. It would be nice to hear from a couple more people. worth figuring out. Yeah. When you sit down, if you feel the same pain every time you sit down, then you should learn more about the sitting meditation posture. Uh, and Grant, we sometimes call him Bodhisattva Gentle Heights. <laughs> um, he's a really good person to ask about options for, for how to sit so that you're, you're comfortable. Um, one more. Yes. Um, I think it also brings up the idea of rules and rules of how you should sit or how uh -huh. it should be, and yes. there's all the rules that we come up against and that uh -huh. often come up against yeah. in terms of even judging my my thoughts. Yeah. And I think for myself, I just don't judge them as much as I did when I was a lot younger and mm -hmm. trying to meditate. I just felt like there was like a good meditator and a bad meditator. Uh -huh. And there were some rules, and now I just don't really feel the rules as much. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you for thank you for sharing. Okay. So I think we'll do this a little bit for the next few weeks as we start to get deeper into Patanjali's description of meditation. Is just check in with each other more about what's going on in practice and. Um, Maybe we can think of some good questions to ask each other to kind of keep this going. Um, so we're going to look at one sentence tonight. Do you think we need to hand it out? Okay, let's hand it out. <laughs> Anna's eager to hand it out. Here, I'll, I'll send this to Okay, so I'll just offer a very short uh, introduction. Um, actually, part of it is a clarification. Uh, Mike's blog is so incredible, but it also made me realize we need a little clarification about two points, um, which is my fault. Yeah. So um, just, just I want to say something before, because we've been talking so much about concentration, and, and I think it's important to remember that the, the orientation of concentration practice is compassion. And compassion comes from the ground of many processes. You don't have compassion in the meditative sense without attention. You don't have compassion in the meditative sense without stability. And the most important is compassion doesn't arise without embodiment. Okay, So it's not quite the same as empathy. Um, 
And that's why we're generating concentration, is to cultivate the conditions for compassion to arise, uh, to realize interdependence, and um, to stun that part of the mind. Lately I've been thinking that the ego is really just like a tourist that is just constantly taking pictures. So something arises, and suddenly there's like some part of the mind that just needs to get a picture of it, and somehow like own that, you know? It's terrible. And there's like, maybe some of us, there's like a whole bus of them. Um, And secondly, Patanjali talked about these two terms in the first chapter, abhyasa and vairagya. Abhyasa is the effort of practice. Vairagya is letting go. And the difference now in his language is he's associating dharana, mindfulness meditation, with effort, with the effort of practice, with abhyasa. And he's calling samadhi, or the depth of concentration, vairagya. In other words, one of the ways we start to cultivate concentration is not through effort, but actually through letting go. Okay. And so there are two kinds of concentration, and this is what I was just reading on the Center of Gravity blog, and I just thought that needed a little more clarification. Uh, the first kind is narrow concentration. Do you remember there was a term we used last week, eka grata? Doesn't sound Greek. Uh, let's say it, eka grata. Grata means pointed, and eka means one. So this is one way of thinking about... Con- so let's say it's, it's actually not fair to say there's two kinds. It's more like a spectrum. So on the one side, you have ekagrata, which is narrow concentration. So you choose the breath, and you just stay with the breath, stay with the breath, stay with the breath. And the, and, and the, and the foundation of that is mindfulness of breathing. And over time, this gives rise to fully being uh, there with the breath, And the hallmark of being there with the breath is that the breath and the mind become very, very still, very, very quiet together. Um, But it's one-pointed. And according to Patanjali, you also find this in the Buddhist teachings of the jhanas, that you also know when one-pointed concentration is showing up because bodily sensations start to feel good. So there's a sense of pleasure. Uh, in Buddhist terminology, that's how you know you're in the first jhana, which is there's a sense of rapture. There's the sense of ease. That there's so much concentration in the breath that the hindrances are not coming in, and you're just held there with breathing. And there's a sense of, of uh, pleasure. And so it's very exclusive. It's a VIP. <laughs> Uh, At the other end of the spectrum, now I should just say that I'm saying spectrum traditionally in practice, they say there's two kinds, but I don't think that's true. I I think it's more of a spectrum. The other side of the spectrum of concentration is moment-to-moment concentration. And this means maintaining a continuity of awareness within a changing field. So a sensation arises. It's a little bit like when you're cooking vegetable soup and you look down in the soup and like a potato comes up and then a broccoli and then, you know, 
piece of beef. Oh, no, not that. Not a piece of beef. And so it's like a sensation comes up, an emotion comes up, and so on. Um, and there's really focused awareness, but it's very, very still. Okay? So instead of being aware of one thing, you're allowing for the uh, coming and going of many things. But instead of the object getting still, it's the mind that's getting completely still. Um, you hear the sound of the elevator, and the mind just hears. It doesn't move. Right? There's the feeling of the temperature changing in the room, and it's a felt change, but the mind doesn't move. It doesn't go anywhere with that experience. And that's why we call it concentration, because you're not, you haven't been distracted enough that you have to come back. You just haven't left. Does this make sense? And that's why there's these different terms, meditation and concentration, or meditation and samadhi. Um, and I would say, and this is my own commentary, that between one side and the other, the characteristic of concentration is that the breath suffuses experiencing. So if you're meditating on sound, there's a sense that you're, the, the breathing is listening. That makes sense. If you're doing walking meditation, there's a sense the breath is, is moving the body. Okay? If you're feeling temperature, there's a sense that you're breathing the temperature. Um, as I spoke about last week, this is a really good practice to work uh, with pain. Uh, becoming really concentrated on pain uh, so you're not leaving the pain and you're right there with pain and using the breath to infuse the pain. Not to exhale and make the pain try and go away or inhale to change where it is in the body, just to let the breath kind of infuse pain. Um, you can do this with anger too, but we're not going to go too far into that. So anyways, that's kind of a summary of what Patanjali's been, been talking about in terms of concentration. And then we get to the line that I want to look at tonight, which is the first superpower, which is line uh, 16. So third chapter, line 16. Observing these three axes of change. Does everybody remember the axes of change from last week? Yes, no? No? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Does anybody want to try and describe them? Okay, that should have been the question. Having a physicality, existing for a time, and being in an environment. Yes. Yeah. So Patanjali is saying that not only do things in the natural world that we call things have these three characteristics, form, right? Time span, they're in time, they, they're, 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 they're born, they decay, they die, but also they, they're in conditions, right? And I think we use the example of a teapot, right? It's born, it goes through different families, it has different temperatures, um, and it changes. It has a form, a time span, a condition. He's saying, but it's not just the stuff of the natural world that's like this. Consciousness is also like this. Consciousness also um, is form, also has time span, and also is conditioned. Okay. 
And then Patanjali says, and this is where the Yoga Sutra starts getting really exciting and most people quit, (laughs) then you start getting superpowers. And the first superpower you get is this one. When you can meditate on the way that everything has a form, has time span, and is in conditions, if you can do this with perfect discipline, you can get deep insight into the past and the future. Isn't that nice? Deep insight into the past and the future. Um, So I just have a a few thoughts about this, and then we can kind of open it up for discussion uh, to kind of launch us in. Um, One thought is why is today today and not tomorrow? Have you thought about this? And why is tomorrow not yesterday? Um, Why is this hour right now, 8.33, not the same as 8.33 yesterday? It's the same measurement in the same 24 hours. And Patanjali seems to suggest the reason is, is because you can only experience your life in an instant of time. Or as Dogen says, everything is for the time being. Everything is just for the time being. So constantly investigating time being shows that there is nothing beyond this. That even if you think about the future or you think about the past, you can only experience it in the present. Anything beyond this is nothing but this. Anything you think of outside of time is nothing but the time being. And every time you think about what's outside of time being is is wrong. And wrong is also just time being. When you're wrong, you're only wrong in the time being. Oh, and if you're right about that, (laughs) you can only experience being right in the time being. So when you are stuck in a mood, then you should see the moments of that mood as just being for the time being. When you have regret about your past, this is okay. This is part of what it's like to be human. And you can have retrospective concentration. Just like you can have prospective concentration. You can concentrate on what it is in the past that's caused you difficulty and really know that. But you can only know that for the time being. And when you feel pain, also it's just for the time being. So Dogen says, half the time is also the time being. The past is in time being And I would add to that, the moment before or after is also only the time being. So the time being is also not the time being, because whatever you think of as being the time being can't be the time being, even though you can only think that in the time being. This is a superpower. (laughs) Um... 
So life is merely an instance of the time being, and that means that understanding uh, never really arrives. Because nothing ever really arrives, and nothing ever really passes, because you're only experiencing that thing in the time being. Everybody says that time is coming and going, but even enlightenment is just the time being. If you found the perfect way to express time, you'd be a fool because you'd be outside of the time being. Or maybe you'd be dead on because you'd realize that being a fool outside of time being can only happen in time being. So Patanjali doesn't use the word enlightenment. He doesn't use the term moksha because he seems to be saying, he's going to get deeper into this, and we're going to look at this next week, that enlightenment is really just a very trivial idea because it's nothing when we understand time being as an instant or what we call a kshana. In other words, he's pulling out from under us this tendency to project into the future an enlightenment or project into the future a death. Because in the moments of enlightenment, like in the moments of death, there's just the time being. But we project it into the future. And the last thing I'll say is that this is a really great example of how Patanjali never abandons his original impulse which is no more philosophy. <coughs> no more philosophy and metaphysics that pulls us out of the time being. That all we have is the time being, and it's very, very precious. And if you really focus on the time being, form, time span, and conditions, then you'll open up to how life is so beautiful, so precious, and so tragic, all at the same time. And Patanjali is saying the only thing that gets in the way of that is attachment to philosophy, is clinging to your philosophy about that. Um, so I had a thought today that concentration in a way, is not really becoming a Buddha. It's just imitating time. It's becoming time. It's a little bit like when you dream. In the dream world, we have no time boundaries. Has anybody noticed this? Does anybody still have dreams about like the person they loved in grade six? <laughs> no? Okay. If you do, we can start a committee over here after. Um, and, and the dead are, are still around. And the future is also draped over us in dreams because we often have prophetic dreams, right? Um, when we're in meditation practice, we're closer to the timeless part of being. And so meditation is a lot like dreaming, even though you're awake, 
Because you're closer to the unconscious. You're cl- and the unconscious doesn't operate in time. That's why our dreams are so trippy. Because the unconscious is not in time. The ego is in time. And so when you meditate, you cultivate in yourself the possibility of being closer to the part of your life you can't understand. Because the part of your life you can't understand is the part of your life that's not governed by time. And so you dovetail your attention to timelessness. You dovetail your attention to dream life. Or I would even go so far as to say you dovetail your attention to your insanity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if any of you saw this year, uh, uh, there was a book that came out called The Red Book, where Carl Jung, uh, during a really difficult phase in his life, realized that to go deeper in his understanding of the unconscious, he had to let himself really go and go into this place of insanity, of psychosis. And he did, and the only thing that kept him together was he painted this book called The Red Book, which was just published. I think it was done in 1918 or 1919 or something. And if you look at this Red Book... uh, The pictures in it are so gory and bloody. But then Jung emerged out of this really a creative character. Uh, And I think in a way this is kind of like what we're doing when we're meditating. Um, We're not necessarily making a red book, but we're making of our life a red book. Where we're touching the part of our unconscious that's more timeless. That part of ourselves where we're not... um, going into the past to make sense of it. I've always felt this way about dreams. When I was studying psychology, we spent so much time, a couple of years, just learning how to analyze dreams. And I never do it anymore. Because I always feel like it just gets too simplistic. It's like analyzing your breakfast, interpreting your breakfast. (laughs) Imagine you finish breakfast, you have, you know a poached egg and a piece of toast, and then you sit and you start interpreting it, what it represents, how it's symbolic. But if you had a dream about an egg, you could spend you know, days in psychotherapy working out the, the, the egg is possibility. It's, it's you know, back when you weren't vegan. <laughs> it's, it's mom at the stove, right? Or how mom was never at the stove. <laughs> but I don't think you should interpret your breakfast too much and I I don't think we should interpret our dreams too much or when we interpret our dreams we should be aware that we're interpreting our dreams I think if you get really close to the feeling of what you dream you don't need to interpret it because it just guides you you know you know something at a really intuitive level And I think in meditation it's the same way. I think the reason why so many of us can't concentrate is because when we get to that unexplainable part of ourselves, the unexplainable part of our mind, then we start analyzing it. We start interpreting it. And we start making meaning out of it. 
So I think when Patanjali says that we can gain insight into the past and future, what he's also pointing us to is the futility of being outside of time. To really realize our experience is just for the time being. So, that's my commentary on Patanjali's sentence. Um, but I'd be interested to know what you have to say. And I think you had your... No, I was just going to wonder... I, I think it's such a powerful idea that you know, all our experiences are, are just in the moment. Yeah. That, that moment is continuous. Yes. But at the same time, it's so surprising how some people are so good at saying, careful that mirror, it's going to smash. <laughs> and, then, and then it does. You know, yeah. so, and, and other people just don't see that. So some people seem very good at, at um, you know, or just you know, better than I am at, at sort of seeing what the next moment's going to be like. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know how that fits into this, this view yeah. that you know, they're, they're doing that in the moment, and yet, but they're also prophetic as to what the next moment uh-huh. will bring. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one of the superpowers Patanjali is going to come to is intuition. He's going to say that when you get really, really still, you become very, very intuitive. And then he gives all kinds of warnings about it. His two biggest warnings about intuition are, the first is that intuition can make you feel more like a self. Because it can feel like you're intuitive. And this is a danger to watch. And the other is uh, to treat intuition just as an arising view and not to hold on to, to that either. To really know that the next moment is totally invisible. And, and maybe this is why Patanjali doesn't talk about life after death. He doesn't say there's life after death and he doesn't say there's no life after death. He just completely leaves the topic alone. Is it, is it possible to say that, imagine you say, you know, I'll take one example of a mirror is poised um, you know, so on a, say on a shelf and some, you know, a trash off and across it, it's going to tip. <clears throat> so that's sort of potentially in the moment. It doesn't, it's not in the future. It's, it can be seen just because it's, sure. sort of, it's there. Yeah, and you can guess about what's going to happen to it in the moment. Hmm. But it doesn't actually happen until that moment's there. Hmm. I mean, you can't go forward in time. My son broke his arm two weeks ago. And it's like, I wish I could like go into time in a way where it's like, I could have been there when he did the flip off the monkey bar in front of the girl. <laughs> but I can't. Yeah. yeah. And I remember my dad saying, I wish I was there when you did the skateboard trick in front of the girl. <laughs> but I wasn't there. He wasn't there. So... Um, Yes, you, your mind can go forward, right? But you still can't have the experience outside of the moment. It's the strangest thing. And when your mind goes forward, it's going forward in the moment. That's why I, I mentioned this term retrospective concentration or retrospective mindfulness and prospective mindfulness. If you're planning for the future, you need to cultivate prospective mindfulness. Really being mindful that you're planning. Otherwise, you think you're in the future. right? And this is really, in psychotherapy, this is, takes a, a very skilled therapist to help people, especially with trauma, to, to work through the past and to move through stories of the past 
but with mindfulness. In other words, not letting them believe that that's the past, but staying connected to the embodied experience of now as we're moving in the past. You see? Or we get uh, stuck in time. And the way you do it uh, psychologically, I want to say mechanically, is when you say, oh, that was the past, then you create a new self that was that in the past. You have to have a self that was then separate, that is now separate from that self in the past. But really, that's not true. You're only experiencing it in the time being. So peculiar. Yeah. Yes? I find it a bit ironic sometimes that uh, what you're describing, that sort of timeless space, it seems to be like a natural birthright, but it's so difficult. Yeah. So much work. Uh huh. So much resistance to, you know, to, uh, I'm just baffled sometimes that it's so much work. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So much work and potentially saying, and so much letting go. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else. It's a great comment. Lana and then Anna. Lana. Lana. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> suggesting that that in in that line he says with perfect discipline he yields insight into the past and future mm-hmm. like the insight that's being yielded is is like that there isn't there isn't that past and yeah. that future mm-hmm. outside of present yeah. thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want you to read ahead yet. But <laughs> <laughs> he's he's gonna even he's gonna go deeper with yeah, but yeah. So it's not like I think it'd be wrong to read it like you get insight into your future, yeah. or you get insight into your past, uh, and that that also is just an emphasis of translation too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like at first we said, it like, oh, it's like a some sort of facetious comment, but well, it is a little bit. Being made there. Yeah, he phrases all the the superpowers like this, where he's it's almost like sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's a punchline. 
Yeah, he lists like I think there's 20 superpowers, and then at the end there's this punchline. It's really funny. But don't read ahead. <laughs> yeah. This reminds me a little bit of a. You're just a silhouette. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> reminds me a little bit of a passage in Mike Bondachi's new book. The central character is a boy. Who's yeah. Uh huh. And he says, with his tongue planted in his cheek, I think that it's amazing how adults, unlike children, can know what the next part of the story is. Yeah. And I thought that's just kind of like yeah. this discussion we've been having. Yeah. That's good. I'm almost done. It's so good, the cat's table. Mm. Grant. Comment seems to link a little bit up uh, when you're talking about Dogen. And I may have misinterpreted this a little bit, but he was talking about trying to express the time being yeah. perfectly. You would have to be a fool. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's what Patanjali is saying. Uh-huh. The only way to... To, to be, and need to paraphrase because I can't remember what you said, uh-huh. to, to feel the present moment is to let go of philosophy. And to be a fool. To be a fool. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. Huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, one more comment, and then we'll... We'll wrap up. Okay, so um, please do your homework. The homework is to um, really uh, just any moment of the day. Maybe there should be an app for this <laughs> where it just like reminds you a few times in the day, and as soon as you hear like the alarm or a vibration or something. Then you uh, um, just remember to see this moment as a moment in time. And uh, you know it's working if sometimes it makes that experience you're in really just very precious. And also if it makes that moment you're in very tragic. Or also if it makes that moment you're in really mundane. Uh, that, that, it, that it just shifts you out of being stuck in what you think that moment is or is heading towards or what caused it. Does that sound reasonable, homework? And then next week we can check in about this and then Patanjali is going to critique everything we just said <laughs> next week. So let's finish uh, chanting and... Um, Oh, before chanting, Grant, do you want to make an announcement? Uh, we are coming towards the end of our Zapitecture project, which is a project to make 30 new Zapis uh, for Center of Gravity. So next Tuesday afternoon, before the Asana class, um, starting maybe quarter past four, uh, we're going to have a Zapu filling extravaganza. What about right at four? We might need all that time we can get. Four. Yeah. Starting at four. Um, so if you have any free time, either at four or sometime between four and, and before the asana practice, you can come in and help. That would be that would be really marvelous. So if you think that might work for you, maybe you could just see. Next Tuesday. A week to.
today. Okay, cool. Yeah. Today. Maybe just check in with me uh, after the yeah. How can it happen a week from today? <laughs> when it's happening, it won't be a week from today, will it? I just had to say that. So let's finish.